Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we talked about America's first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson and the struggles he endured as the first black man in the country to achieve the accolade. Today, it's all about the kids. We'll be talking about how the U.S. school system used sports to turn immigrant children in the inner cities into 100% Americans. To explain more, here's Matt. I have an assignment for you. Don't worry, there will be no essay writing or group work in this course, but, but do me a favor. Do this. Think back to when you were in elementary school and middle school and high school. And in particular, think back to PE, you know, when you played basketball or dodgeball or whatever the game of choice was that week. What would you say was the most important lesson that you learned in PE? I mean, what, what do you think the point of PE was in the first place? I'm going to come back to that idea in just a moment. But in the meantime, do me a favor. Think it over. All right. Today, we explore the idea of sport and Americanism. We're going to focus on the turn of the 20th century era, sort of two decades on either side, let's say uh, 1880 to 1920. Now, Americans became sports crazy in the 1920s. We'll talk about that very soon. Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey and other American sport gods. But today, I, I want to focus on ordinary Americans playing sports. You know, American sport history is not just about the amazing deeds of world-class athletes. It's about the games and sports that we ordinary Americans play as well. And this 1880 to 1920 period that I want to explore today, this is when sports became a presence in everyday American life. And more to, to my point today, this is the era when sports became an important part of American identity. You know, this is when Americans began to say, we Americans play certain sports. And when they said, if you want to be a real American, you need to play this sport. 
This is when Americans began to say, we Americans are better than everybody else. And the proof can be found on the field of competition, you know, in our athletic victories. That last idea, that's the story of the United States at the Olympic Games, which we'll talk about next time. But my overall point right now is that this is the era, again, 1880 to 1920. This is when Americans began defining themselves through sports. So let's get to that. I've been talking in the course about how American sports, such as baseball and football, are to a large extent continuations of English sporting practices. But whether it was those New York Knickerbockers shortening and shrinking the game of baseball or Walter Camp up in Yale coming up with the line of scrimmage, these English games, Americans took them and tinkered with them. You know, they were altered. One might say these games were made American. But there were many sports being played in the United States that held on to their original European character. And this was very much on purpose. You know, as European immigrants came to the United States in the 19th century, many immigrant men, they they clung to their homeland sports as an expression of their, their homeland or ethnic identity. You know, just as people held on to their homeland language, religion, and, and, and other customs. For example, Many English immigrants, they rejected baseball and they clung to cricket as an expression of their Englishness. English immigrants gathered and played cricket to meet fellow English immigrants and to maintain a link with their homeland. You you can still see this happening through the sport of cricket today as Indian and Pakistani and Sri Lankan and West Indian immigrants in, in New York City, they have a vibrant cricket league. Just as it was almost 200 years ago, cricket is a way for immigrant men to maintain homeland connections based on that common sporting interest. In the 19th century, Irish and, and Scottish immigrants, well, they wouldn't be caught dead playing cricket. You know, that was an English sport. The English were the hated conquerors of Ireland and Scotland. Irish immigrants, they formed clubs and they played the Irish sport of hurling, which is a a stick and ball game that's sort of a mix between field hockey, lacrosse and rugby, I suppose. I don't know if you've ever seen hurling. Hurling is an awesome sport. Scottish immigrants, they formed Caledonian clubs. Members would come and wear their kilts and play their bagpipes, and they would compete in traditional Scottish games, which are sometimes called Highlander games. Um, wrestling, foot races, stone throws. Oh, the totally awesome caber toss in which competitors see who can hurl a 20-foot long tapered pine pole the furthest. These were some of the games that came from the highlands of Scotland. One more example. German immigrants, they brought their sporting traditions with them as well, especially something called the Turnverein. And there were many Turnverein clubs in the United States, and the Turnverein is a unique case. The Turnverein was a a, a German club, and here in the United States, a German-American club. And it was many things. It It was a social, a political, and an athletic club. German men and women who went to the Turnverein, they were known as Turners. And they would go to the Turnverein maybe to purchase German language reading material, maybe to hear a lecture on politics, or they came to engage in athletics. 
So one of the ideas behind the Turnverein is that it's a place to build up German bodies. You know, so this was about exercise and, and developing physical strength. But what made the Turners unique, especially in the context of the United States, is that at the Turnverein, they engaged in non-competitive athletic endeavors. The Turners, they, they specialized in team acrobatics, or, or what today I suppose we would call synchronized gymnastics. Imagine dozens, sometimes even hundreds of German Americans engaged in these massive synchronized displays of, of stretching and, and human pyramid building. You know, this was the Turnverein. And these athletic displays, they were something that men and women, they could do in concert with each other. They were moments of athleticism that linked participants through the pursuit of a common goal, you know, rather than through competition against one another. The Turnverein is, is so interesting and so unique, especially in compared to the hyper-competitiveness that one found in most American sports. All right. But in all of these cases, right, uh, English cricketers, Irish hurlers, Scottish highlanders, German turners, in all of these cases, sports are being used as an expression of a specific homeland or ethnic identity. But beginning around the 1880s, more and more Americans were becoming uneasy with all the ethnic diversity in the United States, and especially in the American cities, like New York City, you know, places that were receiving hundreds of thousands of European immigrants every year. And to deal with this surge in immigration, we began to get a large number of Americans arguing very passionately for the need to Americanize these immigrants, right? These people, they need to assimilate. It was one of the presidents in this era, Teddy Roosevelt. He said, there is no room in America for hyphenated Americans. You know, he said, we don't want Irish Americans and German Americans, Scottish Americans, and so on. What we want is 100% Americans. And look, that idea means different things to different people. But to Teddy Roosevelt and others, this idea of 100% Americanism, this is the idea that real Americans speak English. Real Americans pledge allegiance to the flag. You know, real Americans act a certain way in public. And there is an idea that emerges at this time that you can turn people into real Americans through education. Specifically, the children of the immigrants, right? We will turn the children of these immigrants into real Americans by sending them to American schools and instructing them in American ways. Let's have them take American civic lessons. Let's have them pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. But another way you can do this is through play. You can turn immigrant children into American children by using sports. And this takes us to an idea from this era, something called the gospel of play. The gospel of play is a philosophy of sport that comes out of the increasingly crowded, polluted, you know, immigrant filled American cities. And the gospel's intellectual leader, its foundation, it, it was a, a child psychologist named Stanley Hall. 
And Stanley Hall argued that the key to a healthy America is healthy children. And the key to healthy children, he said, is healthy play. It's actually because of Stanley Hall and others that we get the playground movement at this time in, in American history. This was the era when cities started building playgrounds and recreation centers for, for children so children could be active and healthy. The playground movement is a reaction to the crowded, dirty streets in the American cities at this time. It's a reaction to children playing in raw sewage that flowed through the streets. Or I've seen photographs of children playing on dead horses, you know, horses that were rotting and littering city streets. And Stanley Hall said something has to be done to give these children spaces in which they can exercise and be healthy. The head of the New York City school system, he was a big believer in the gospel of play and a believer in the playground movement. And I always like how he put it. He said this. The country boy roams the hills and has access to God's first temples. What can we offer to the city boy in exchange for paradise lost? His only road to paradise regained is through the gymnasium, the athletic field and the playground. After the break, basketball is invented at the YMCA to keep young Americans occupied in the winter. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. All right. So on the one hand, the gospel of play is about physical exercise, right? Physical exercise as, as an antidote to the city. But it's more than that. It's more than just exercise and physical fitness. Stanley Hall and others believed that in these playgrounds, specific games and specific sports should be used to turn immigrant children, those hyphenated Americans, into 100% Americans. And for this task, they emphasized the need for team sports. 
Stanley Hall and others believe that team sports provided important modern lessons. They taught, well, obviously teamwork. They taught self-sacrifice and loyalty. And very importantly, they taught obedience. They taught children to follow the rules. So this was more than just about physical health. This was about using sports and games to educate children about what it meant to be a good American citizen. Uh, One example, baseball. Baseball was considered an especially good sport to educate young Americans. And it's because of the structure of the game. You know, in baseball, everyone is an individual when they come to the to the plate. So that cherished idea of American individualism, it's, it's still at play here. But all of the individuals are also part of a larger team, just like being a citizen in the American nation. And sometimes the individual is asked to make a sacrifice for the good of the collective. The traits that made someone a good baseball player, these physical educators said, are the same traits that made someone a good American as well. So just as the school system used things like the civics class and the Pledge of Allegiance to turn immigrant children into law-abiding patriotic Americans, sports would be used for the same purpose. Playing sports would teach these children common values, teach them how to work together for common goals. And I'm going to say it again, very importantly, playing team sports would teach children to follow the rules. They would teach children the importance of following the rules that society has laid out before them. This is why when we all played sports and games at school, it was not called sports time or playtime. It was called physical education. Physical education, or PE, was the idea that through sports, young people could be educated as to what it meant to be a real American. So think back to that question I asked you about at the start. When you all had PE, you were supposed to be learning what it meant to be a good, law-abiding, team-playing American citizen, something that I think many of us missed. Or, Or maybe we didn't. Maybe that's the point. It's an implicit education. We're supposed to learn those lessons without even knowing that we're learning them. Well, the organization that made it their goal to spread this gospel of play was the Young Men's Christian Association, you know, YMCA. We need to talk about the why. The YMCA was founded in England in the 1850s. It was part of that emphasis on muscular Christianity we have talked about. And it was quickly transplanted and and took root in the United States uh, right before the Civil War. And the YMCA was created as a response to urbanization. That The purpose of the YMCA was to offer spiritual guidance and, and practical assistance to all the, the young men flooding the cities. You know, uh, a temporary room to sleep, a shower, stuff like that. The YMCA also offered classes in physical culture. And then early on, these classes were about gymnastics, sort of like the turnverine I was telling you about. We'll uh, do stretching and calisthenics and lift dumbbells. But then a man named Luther Gulick Jr., he changed this. Luther Gulick was the YMCA's most influential leader and innovator. 
And it was under Gulick's leadership that the YMCA abandoned the repetitive gymnastics drills that their members were, were doing. And instead, the YMCA adopted the ideas of Stanley Hall, that they moved toward emphasizing team sports. Team sports in the name of physical education. Team sports in the name of making good young Americans. The most important of all the YMCA's was not the Y in big cities like New York or Chicago or San Francisco. It was the YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. The YMCA had a training school in Springfield. It was essentially a, a laboratory for sports. They invented games there. And this takes us to the invention of a rather significant sport, a sport that I think needs to be understood as an expression of the gospel of play that we were just talking about. In the early winter of 1891, the physical educators at the Springfield YMCA, they were faced with a, with a problem. Their students, who were young men, late teenage, early 20s, these young men, they were getting bored. You know, during the spring and the summer and the fall, they played outdoor sports. They played baseball and football and they ran track. But in the winter, the cold winter, there was little to do except go inside the gym and do calisthenics, you know, stretching exercises. And these students, these young men, they got restless. They got rambunctious. And some of the teachers at the YMCA, they were getting frustrated with them. They were complaining about them, their, their, their rowdiness. They called this group the incorrigibles. And then one of the faculty members at a faculty meeting, one of the faculty members at the Springfield Y, he spoke up. He said, the trouble is not with the men, but with the system we are using. Well, that faculty member who spoke up was named James Naismith. And Luther Gulick, who was the head of the Springfield Y, he leapt at that comment and he put James Naismith in charge of the incorrigibles. He said, if you think you can do it better, go ahead. Luther Gulick gave James Naismith two weeks, two weeks to come up with a new system to keep the students interested, you know, to get those incorrigibles in line. All right, who is James Naismith? Naismith was born in 1861 near Ottawa, Ontario, and then he attended McGill University in Montreal, and he played sports at McGill, a lot of them, lacrosse and soccer and rugby. He performed gymnastics. Lacrosse was his favorite. Naismith loved lacrosse. While in college, Naismith was twice voted McGill's best athlete. And while at McGill, he studied theology, and James Naismith was interested in the ministry. So Naismith is an athlete. He's a theological student. He is a classic example of a muscular Christian. But he decided to reject the ministry and become a physical educator. And he decided he would help develop Christian souls through sports. So after finishing at McGill, Naismith came to the YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts, where he studied under Luther Gulick. He became a teacher there himself. And now he has spoken up and he's been charged with the task of getting the incorrigibles in line. And so charged with this job, Naismith began to ponder a new game that could be played indoors, you know, in the confines of the gymnasium, game that could be played during the winter. And he needed to give these incorrigibles an outlet. 
And I want to go into this moment in a little detail because I, I think it's a fascinating task, inventing a brand new sport. I've tried to invent a few sports uh, over the years, none of them successful. You know, so let's ask the question, how do you do it? Now, just so you know, spoiler alert, the game Naismith is going to invent is basketball. But here's how it happened. James Naismith, well, he was a student of sport. So he looked at the other sports out there and he, he thought about what made them enjoyable. And then he borrowed a little bit here and a little bit there for his new sport. For example, he decided his new sport would have a ball. I mean, maybe that seems obvious, but it didn't have to have a ball. It could have had bows and arrows and shields. I don't know, but all of the popular team sports had a ball. So, okay, a ball. But what kind of ball? A, a small ball? A large ball? Well, Naismith noticed that sports with small balls, like tennis or golf or baseball or croquet, these sports required other equipment, clubs, rackets, bats, mallets. This was too complicated, Naismith said. I want simplicity. So the ball would be large, the, the primary piece of equipment, the primary object. And what he decided to use was essentially a soccer ball, a stitched leather ball with laces. Because the game would be played indoors, Naismith wanted his game to be marked by finesse and not brute strength. He didn't want people to get hurt on the hard floor. So there was no goal on the ground that you would smash through or, or throw the ball toward with great force, like a, like a soccer goal. Instead, he decided the goal would be up high, where aim and skill and, and, and touch would come into play. Naismith was actually a big fan of a simple children's game called Duck on a Rock. I wonder if you played that growing up, where you place an object on top of a base and you try to knock it off that base by lobbing rocks at it. You know, it takes aim. It, it takes acumen. The lobbing of a rock at the duck is the origin of the basketball shot. And since the game would be played not just indoors, but on those hard floors, tackling, he said, tackling is out, even though Naismith loved rugby. In fact, in order to avoid most contact and collisions almost entirely, Naismith came up with the rule that you could not run with the ball. The only way to move the ball was to pass it. Now, dribbling actually won't be invented in basketball for another 10 years. And this rule very much suited Gulick's idea about the purpose of this, uh, of the sport. To score a basket, the ball would have to be passed and shared. One man cannot just take it and run with it and do it all on his own. Team play and getting along with others would be one of the keys. So I'm a big basketball fan. So here's the date. December 21st, 1891. Naismith came to class with 13 rules for his brand new sport. He tacked these 13 rules to a bulletin board and he told the incorrigibles to gather around, read them and memorize them. The incorrigibles learned they would be playing a sport where they would pass around a ball and try to throw the ball into the other team's raised goals. And these goals were two large peach baskets that just happened to be laying around and that Naismith had a janitor mount on both ends of the gym. It was one of those old gyms that had a track on the second floor. So the janitor went up to the track and then bent down and hung the baskets. And they were hung at a height of 10 feet, just by chance. Naismith had not calculated that 10 feet was the ideal height. They were just put at 10 feet. 
and this became the standard height of a basket. I think about this often. What if that track had been 12 feet above the ground or 15 feet? You know, this game we are discussing right now would be very different. Or what if that track was only eight and a half feet above the ground? Well, then I could dunk. That's what. You know, there are those who say that it's absurd that we still use the 10 foot basket. The men who Naismith designed the game for were likely all under six feet tall. And in case you don't know this, basketball players today are much larger. Anyway, there were 18 incorrigibles. So Naismith divided them into two teams of nine, nine against nine. This was the early standard in basketball. But a few years later, that will be changed. It will be five on five for men and six on six for women. We'll we'll discuss women's six on six basketball in a future lecture. In this very first game, you got one point every time you threw the ball into your opponent's peach basket or basket. And the final score of that first game was one to nothing. I suppose today we would call that a defensive struggle. So maybe there was not a lot of scoring that first game, but the incorrigibles loved it. They loved playing this game and they encouraged Naismith to call it Naismith ball. Naismith was much more modest than that. He said, no, it's called basketball. The name then is literal. I mean, it could have been Naismith ball or Naismith could have used crates instead of baskets and it would have been crate ball or he could have used a cardboard box and it would have been box ball but it was peach baskets and thus basketball. The game of basketball, it caught on and it spread to the other YMCAs quickly. And by quickly, I mean within months. Naismith's original 13 rules, they were printed in the official YMCA newsletter and sent to every YMCA in the country. And the reason this game became so popular so fast is that it fit the needs of the gospel of play reformers in three important ways. First of all, basketball did not require large fields like football or baseball, so it was perfectly suited for the crowded city. Second, basketball was an indoor game, so it could be played in the winter when many other activities were out of the question. And third, this is a big reason, Basketball was a team sport that emphasized sharing and camaraderie. So it was the ideal game for those reformers who were trying to simultaneously exercise and educate young Americans about teamwork, self-sacrifice, and sharing. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, the first modern Olympics. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.